Orbital Gardens, this is Mission Control. We are confirming acquisition of your signal. You are live in 5, 4, 3, 2... Hello and welcome to episode 45 of Gardeners of the Galaxy, the podcast for all of the sentient beings in the universe who have a passion for plants. I'm Emma the Space Gardener and I will be your host as we explore gardening on Earth and beyond. It's a very special episode today as Gardeners of the Galaxy has completed its second orbit around the Sun. Yes, it's our second birthday, so I'd like to say a massive thank you to everyone who has supported the show over the last two years. I have thoroughly enjoyed going on astrobotany adventures with you, and I hope we can continue to do so for many more orbits to come. And as it's a special episode, we've got a very special guest for today's show. Earlier this year, Astrobotany hit the headlines as scientists from the University of Florida Space Plants Lab announced to the world that they had successfully grown plants in genuine lunar soil collected during the Apollo missions to the moon. The timing is perfect, as we just celebrated the 53rd anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing on the 20th of July, and we're all hoping to see Artemis 1 launch to the moon in the coming weeks. Doctors Annalisa Paul and Robert Furl are the astrobotanists behind this groundbreaking work. They grew the model plant Arabidopsis in lunar regolith collected during three separate Apollo missions from three different sites on the Moon, and their experiments go way beyond proving that plants can grow in lunar soil. I spoke to Annalisa Paul about the history of lunar plant biology, her recent experiments and her wealth of experience investigating how plants adapt to living in microgravity. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to remind you that you can give Gardeners of the Galaxy a boost by becoming a patron. Starting from just a pound a month, you can support the show and get early access to episodes plus exclusive bonus content. Visit patreon.com forward slash Gardeners of the Galaxy to find out more. Hi, Annalisa. Welcome to Gardeners of the Galaxy. It's great to have you on the show today. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Very happy about it. <laughs> so, I mean, you and your colleague Rob Furl have done some brilliant research recently, but I wanted to just have a look at some of the history um, behind that. And I guess people would be quite surprised to learn that all these years after the Apollo moon landings, NASA hadn't really done much experimenting with plants on, on moon rock. They did do a little bit, didn't they? Can you tell us about the early history of plants? So plants actually played a very big role in the early Apollo history. Now, you are correct in that plants have never been grown in lunar regolith, that no one has studied from the plant's point of view what kind of responses you would have growing in lunar regolith. However, plants did play a very big role in that back in the very early days, nobody knew that regolith and any materials from the moon were not dangerous or not toxic. And so what plants did early on is that they served as the uh, the canary in the coal mine kind of thing, is that that uh, very uh, dedicated plant biologist named Charles Falkenshaw actually took plants grown in regular materials, you know, just grown in standard, standard dirt, earth dirt, and he took a tiny bit of the regolith that came back from the early Apollo missions and sprinkled it on the surfaces of the plants or rubbed the leaves with a little bit of that regolith and asked, is there anything that we don't recognize as life that could infect biology from the earth and therefore cause a catastrophic collapse of our environments if it were to get free outside of the lunar receiving laboratory? 
to make a long story short, nope, doesn't bother plants or animals or anything at all. And eventually their astronauts were allowed to leave the little Airstream trailer in which they were quarantined. But plants played a big role in allowing that knowledge to be comfortable that no, there was nothing on the moon that was going to harm creatures from the earth. <laughs> Fabulous. So, I mean, you have said that you have spent a long time trying to get your hands on some of these moon rock samples. It's a very difficult thing to do. <laughs> so why has NASA decided that the time is right now um, to have a go with some plant experiments? Well, I think that part of it is the fact that we're going back to the moon. And so before the Artemis program really had any traction and that was the days in which Rob and I first applied for getting some of these materials. Back then in the, in, in 2010-ish or so, nobody really was confident in going back to the moon for more samples. And so NASA had to really be very cautious and protective of these very precious and unique samples. And, and once you give them over to biologists like us, those samples are never the same again. And so, it's even though we have to return the materials that we that we received, they're never pristine moon materials again, of course, after that. But going back to the moon in Artemis is twofold. One is that we will be getting more samples. Humans will be getting more samples because they'll be return missions from Artemis. But second of all, is that the idea behind Artemis is to go to the moon to stay. And so there'll be uh, outposts that require long-term habitation of these facilities. And in order to really make that work, you got to have plants in the equation. Absolutely. Okay, so NASA gave you tiny, tiny amounts <laughs> of real rock from the moon to experiment with. So tell us about your amazing research. How did you go about it? Well, first of all, we asked for four grams, and we asked for four grams of Apollo 17, which um, this particular set of materials we requested is just the stuff that Harrison Schmidt dug out from underneath the bumper of the rover, sort of semi by accident, to uh, act as a buffering material for real rock samples. So we thought, nah, you know, geologists aren't going to really want that kind of stuff. They'll give it to us biologists instead. Yeah. However, our proposal, the most recent proposal that we submitted in 2019, was quite well received. And the, uh, the, the people who reviewed it decided that, you know, this is a pretty good experiment. And what would be even better is if we could compare different sites of the Apollo missions. And so we got four grams of the Apollo 17 stuff. But we also got four grams from Apollo 11 and four grams from Apollo 12. And that really made all the difference for the science. So what we did is that we grew tiny, tiny little pots of plants that were in uh, what we call microtiter plates. And so we created these very small habitats that could accommodate a single gram of material in one of these little tissue culture wells um, from these plates. And we grew a single Arabidopsis plant in each one of those. And so we wound up with, uh, with essentially three replicates from of the different sites and then plants that came from each one of those sites, uh, four plants each. The um, analysis that we did were we, first of all, we, we grew them and took pictures every day. So we have data on how well they grew. Uh, we also have information, of course, on their structure, their color, you know, what they look like. Um, but the most important things to us, because we are molecular biologists, is at uh, at the end of 20 days, we 
harvest them and ground up their leaves, and then asked what were the patterns of gene expression compared to the controls. Now, the controls are very important because if you were to try to compare how they would grow in your garden soil, that's so, so different that it would, it would hardly be a valid comparison. Uh, so what we did instead is we chose the very best lunar simulant that matched these three type of um, basaltic materials that we got. And that's something that's called JSC1A that uh, back in the days you could get from NASA and different kind of companies that make this stuff. This is a, it's a volcanic ash material that's uh, also based on these same kind of basalts. When you compare how the plants grew in JSC1A, and all these plants have just a smidgen of uh, nutrient solution in there with them because otherwise nothing would grow. The, uh, the plants that grow in JSC1A all looked beautiful and lush like uh, the little tiny Arabidopsis plants normally like to look. But the, the plants grown in the lunar materials had a varying kinds of responses. In general, the plants that grew in the Apollo 11 soils or regolis were the scrawniest and the, the least happy about growing there. And the plants that grew in Apollo 12 were probably the happiest of, uh, of, the, of the plants growing in lunar regular. And the patterns of gene expression also reflect this in that the genes that were associated with the ones growing in Apollo 11 showed a lot more patterns of what we would associate with stress responses, especially things like what we call reactive oxygen species and, and also metal stress and salt stress. The Apollo 12 ones did as well, but not as much as the Apollo 11s. So <laughs> the first thing that we learned is that even when plants look pretty healthy, they are turning on a number of different genes that are enabling them to, to look healthy, enabling them to grow and to, to respond. But in order to do so, they have to pull a lot of tools out of their metabolic toolbox to enable them to metabolically adjust, to physiologically adapt to that new and harsh environment that is totally outside their evolutionary experience. And so some of the things that they turn on may not be exactly right, but they're essentially doing their, quote, best to, uh, to adjust to something they've never seen before. And we found that the Apollo 11 samples Probably what is behind the fact of why they're not growing so well is that those samples are far, far older. In other words, they've been exposed to the surface of the moon for maybe a billion years longer than the samples on Apollo 12. And during that long time of exposure, they've become sharper and finer and more glasses, more sharp edges, more reactive surfaces, and a lot more things like nanophase iron, these elemental iron that is a strong component of the solar wind that gets deposited on the surface. And all of those things contribute to an environment that is far harsher to uh, terrestrial biology than uh, the relatively speaking younger materials of Apollo 12. Okay, so I mean, does that tell us that, I mean, as on Earth, there are different soils in different places on the moon and we need to be careful where we put our garden? Or does it tell us that we need to dig down deeper under the surface and get at some, something fresher? Well, my, my geology colleague, who is also an author on this page, Stephen Alardo, could probably tell you that answer more precisely. But in general, what that means is that we do have to pay attention to where we draw these in situ resources that we're, we're envisioning using in a lunar greenhouse. But it also tells us that there are things that we need to, to pay attention to 
as we use those materials. And so, for instance, if you talk about even this elemental iron, elemental iron doesn't exist in Earth because as soon as you hit it with water and oxygen, well, it's something else. And so it doesn't take long to what we would think of as conditioning the regolith because as soon as you add water and air and and, and mix it up, you you start to de-sharpen those edges. You start to break along those those uh, fine fibers of glass. You oxidize the uh, the metals and things that are in there. And biology itself, of course, transforms the materials in which they grow. That's essentially how we go from, you think about uh, um, the classic example of the Krakatoa, where you have a completely sterilized island in the Pacific. It doesn't take long for life to return. And life itself conditions the materials around it, making the nest succession of creatures in biology, whether they be bacteria or plants or crabs, make it a more hospitable place to live. And that's what will happen with the lunar regolith that we use in greenhouses on the moon. And so what we need is a lunar processing plant that helps us turn it into lunar potting soil, I guess. Exactly. And plants, <laughs> of course, will, will lead the way. <laughs> yes. Is it going to be like it is here on Earth where we start with pioneer plants that are more adapted to this kind of activity um, and they'll turn that into something that is a little bit more friendly for, for things that are more useful to us, do you think? Possibly. I mean, that's actually a, a very appropriate approach to do things. And whether we we would choose to do that by doing a true sort of a succession treatment, like starting with some algae and bacteria to help condition the soil, and then you know something like spartina grass, which is a highly salt tolerant or something, and then till it all under, as it were, or just start straight with something like our first crop will be spinach, which is more salt tolerant than, say, you know, broccoli. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, allow the, the successive plants to, with each generation, prepare it for the next rotation, much like you would do on Earth. You, you plant a cover crop of alfalfa before you want to plant wheat because you don't want to enrich the soil with nitrogen. So there's many adaptive processes that can be used even before we start thinking about things like genetic engineering. And so the uh, engineering of the materials that we can do with physical and chemical means, engineering of the habitat that can create a more, you know, aerated, friendly kind of environment than in growing things in teeny tiny wells of, uh, of a culture plate. Um, and then, of course, the biological engineering that could be done in addition to choices that we have of, of um readily available crop plants and other species that we could use. Okay, so do you think that the first plants to grow in, on the moon, will they be something like Arabidopsis just as a test, or will we be taking something a little bit more useful? I think the first plants will be Arabidopsis. However, I think that it's so compelling to grow something mm, a little more relevant than Arabidopsis that, that those will come in someone's pocket as well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I know that you didn't do, I don't think that you did this kind of analysis. You, you wouldn't have had a lot of plant material to work with, but at some point somebody's going to have to do the testing of the plant material itself to say that it's safe to be eaten, surely. Yes, I suppose that is certainly true. I think that because plants are great engineers of their own in modifying materials that they're growing in. So for instance, if you take a look 
again, coming back to the metallic iron example, once there, that iron has been oxidized and now solubilized, it's able to be taken up by plants. Although it wouldn't be toxic it, anymore, it would actually contribute to nutritive iron materials that then would be beneficial for humans. And so I don't know of personally any kind of things that are truly toxic in the lunar soil yeah. that would be drawn up by plants that would then be a, a threat to um, to uh, humans. But yes, you're right. All those things will, would, of course, have to be uh, have to be tested. And this must be a very exciting time to be sort of a lunar plant biologist then, because you're finally looking at uh, Artemis missions on the horizon and actually see, getting to put some of these things into practice. It's extraordinary. We are so lucky. When Rob and I were first looking at the very first sprouts, just a couple of days after they were planted, we we really didn't know whether they would all grow. We didn't know whether the the, the first set would be stunted or behind or anything. And so when we first looked at them and all of the seedlings were growing and they all looked fine. They all looked like the controls. They all looked like normal little Arabidopsis plants at that age. We were struck by what an amazing point in history we were just privileged to experience. We were, we were making this, this bridge from the Apollo of the past to the Artemis of the future. And it was a very humbling and wondrous moment in time for us as corny as that sounds <laughs> i don't think it sounds corny at all and of course you then went on to be a big splash in the media when you published these amazing results and this is what you know one of the few times that you know the whole world has been interested in space plants so that was amazing yeah isn't that amazing um i mean we are just you know simple country molecular biologists and all of a sudden it's a lot of attention and it's been extraordinary and, and also a lot of fun to be able to share this, especially with kids. And all of a sudden we've got you know, children who are interested in, in science in a way that perhaps they hadn't been before. And this uh, idea of having this, being able to have this kind of adventure in science is, is an amazing gift. And, you know, I was talking to some students a, a couple of weeks ago and, and they said something like, well, I'd love to be able to do something like this. How did you, how did you get to be here? I said, well, I didn't, didn't envision being here. I just knew that I wanted to keep learning and, and keep exploring and you'd never know where your path takes you. And then all of a sudden you're there. Yeah. <laughs> That's fabulous. Cause I mean, there is this idea that's very often this idea that you have to have a goal in mind, a dream that you're reaching for. Um, and you're saying that actually you don't have to know where you're going to end up. You can see where it takes you and, and you'll still end up somewhere wonderful. I think that is a true statement for sure. Now, was I always fascinated by space and things growing up? Yes, of course. I mean, that's, you know, I, I was. But I didn't envision myself being a plant space biologist until paths just took me there. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. Okay, so I mean, you mentioned that the the moon rock samples are really just on loan from NASA and at some point you have to give them back. Have you got plans to do any more research with them before you do? Oh, absolutely. So one of the things we're in the process of right now is looking at what does the next generation of plants look like? And by that, I don't mean the seeds from the first ones, but you know, what is the next round of plantings in that material look like? Is it something that now we can tell more about how the soil or, well, how the regolith has become soil in, in a way yeah. and what we can learn from that. You know, how can we 
mitigate some of the stresses are the things that we can do to go a little bit farther on that path. Yes, because as you said, the plants themselves will have changed mm-hmm. the regolith environment. So it's not the same as it was when NASA gave it to you anymore. Right. So this next batch will be slightly different. So we can all look forward to seeing what you learn from that. That'd be exciting. Yes, right. And, and we're working more on the regolith itself, too. You know, we know how now that the plants are responding to the regolith. So how is the regolith responding to the plants and, and looking at um, um, more geological studies of, of what the regolith looked like before and what it looked like afterwards, as well as the plant responses. So lots of exciting things to be going on with there. So I know that before this exciting moon rock um experiments you've done a lot of research with space plants you've been up in a zero g plane i've seen a little video of you mm-hmm. <laughs> that must have been amazing and you've sent plants into space you've had plants on the space shuttle on the international space station and on oh, you know on suborbital flights with uh, blue origin and virgin galactic mm-hmm. so i mean you've if it goes into space you've sent a plant up on it i think <laughs> you can pretty much say <laughs> yes this is pretty true <laughs> Yes, so Rob and I have sent a lot of different experiments to space. We've sent them to in zero gravity planes and F-104 planes. We've, we've done a lot of, of really fantastic kinds of experiments, both with ourselves as part of the experiment, as well as sending things that are autonomous into, for instance, the suborbital flights. But the other thing that we've done is we've practiced what it would be like to grow plants in extreme environments and in what we call planetary analog environments. And so our interest in using regolith in a greenhouse actually originated back in 2006 or so in the high Canadian Arctic inside of an old impact crater called the Houghton Crater, where we were part of, of a team that was exploring the Arthur Clark Mars greenhouse that used uh, autonomous materials that um, uh, part of our Canadian colleagues, as uh, Matt Bamsey and Tom Graham, Elaine Bernstein, were we're all part of a team of how would you construct a greenhouse that you might want to use on the surface of another planet. And one of the things that we did is Rob and I collected some of the brecciated materials that are very moon-like looking. Nothing grows in this impact crater. And we used them in the greenhouse and asked, could we grow plants in the materials that we just collected outside in this desolate environment? And we uh, fast forwarded back up to about 2017, 2018, and we worked in another greenhouse on the Antarctic ice shelf that's uh, part of the Eden ISS project at the Neumeyer 3 station that, again, asks, all right, so if you want to put a greenhouse in a place that is so totally remote, what would that look like? What kind of systems it would use? And in this case, instead of using regolith and stuff inside the greenhouse, it was a very um, high-tech aeroponic greenhouse, very different from the Arthur C. Clarke greenhouse that we used in the Canadian Arctic. So asking a different type of technology and a different kinds of approaches. But both of those systems were extraordinary from also giving you the impression of what it would be like to be on another planetary surface. What would it be like to have the degree of isolation and also appreciation for what it's like being in a place that can kill you with without protective clothing that deserves your respect and deserves the kind of awe that you hope that an astronaut would also feel when they walked off their ship and had to deal with this kind of environment. So there's value in also doing these sort of 
practice events of uh, what it would be like. And they must be fun as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. There is that. Again, how very lucky we have been. <laughs> I am so jealous. <laughs> Uh, so now that there is this more sort of commercial era of spaceflight, if you were given the opportunity to, to go up into space with one of your experiments, would you choose to do that? Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether you saw my note about choosing a fantasy space plant that you might take into space. We can talk about that. One of the things that, um, in fact, Rob and I did a, a while ago is we wrote a proposal for uh, what's called NIAC. And it's a NASA proposal that essentially is what kind of pie in the sky ideas can you think of? And, and these proposals go for things like, um, space elevators and stuff like that that, yeah. you know, people haven't invented yet, but here's some thoughts that go into the background. So we wrote a proposal on how would you design the perfect space plant? And of course, we're using genetic engineering and for that, but what uh, what we proposed is to can we design a plant based on all of the molecular biology data that we've already collected as to what genes are important you know what kind of structures are important and growing in microgravity what would you need what would you, what could you give away and so we uh, based on kale of all things because as you probably know the a lot of the brassicaceous plants that we eat are all based on the progenitor of wild mustard and so the, the, the genome of things like kale and turnips and uh, broccoli and Brussels sprouts, all those kinds of things are all related to this, their own being progenitors. So the, the genome is very complex, but also very plastic. So what if we designed a plant using that basic genetics, which is also shared predominantly with Arabidopsis, what we've worked with, the plant that is a vining sort of thing that you can eat the leaves, you can eat the you know thickened stems, you can get seeds that make oil, all those kinds of things. So roll together all of the characteristics of the standard plants that you think of that can provide high levels of protein, high levels of starch, and then oil in the seeds. And so that would be our fantasy plant of trying to make something that you can eat every portion of would be easy to grow. And in microgravity, you wouldn't need to have, um, you know, a lot of structure to it and things. Oh, fabulous. So <laughs> I guess that didn't get funded. <laughs> or is that recent? No. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little too out there. <laughs> so far, it'll, it'll have its day. Now, that sounds brilliant because, yes, as you say, the, there's so many different kinds of plants in Nebraska. There's so much genetic potential there. That's, you know, that's a really good plant to choose. It really is a pleasure to be able to have these kinds of conversations that, that you've initiated and others. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a wonder to be here. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your amazing research and good luck with your next round of Apollo moon regolithic experiments. Thank you so very much. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. I'm sorry that the, my colleague Rob Furl couldn't, couldn't join us, but it was a wonderful experience. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been such a pleasure to meet you. That's it for this episode. Next time we'll hear about Dandelion, a fantastic project spreading art, music and vertical gardens all across Scotland this summer. There's just time to thank my patrons for their ongoing support and to remind you that you can sign up to the Gardeners of the Galaxy newsletter for new episode alerts and bonus astrobotany content. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. 
Orbital Gardens, this is Mission Control, confirming termination of your signal. I have some bad news for you. The top brass have refused your request to start a legume experiment. They're focused on cultivating peas on Earth right now.